0: Well, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons of England. My name's Simon Chaplin. I'm the director of the Hunterian Museum, which I hope some of of you will have seen this evening. Uh, This is the second lecture in our series, From Vesalius to Virtual Reality, on the History of Anatomy. The series is a collaboration between the museum and the library here at the college, and I hope you'll have a chance this evening to see some of the books and other items from our special collections displayed in the library. If you haven't had a chance to see them, the library will be open again at the end of the lecture for 20 minutes, for those of you who want to have a quick whiz round then, and there will be a longer-lasting exhibition on the history of Grey's Anatomy running through until May. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, let me just say a few words about the college. Although we are here tonight to discover more about the history of anatomy, it isn't just a historical subject for the college. The college is still, of course, interested in the teaching of anatomy, and I think most of us would agree that having a surgeon with some basic grasp of anatomy is generally a good thing. Um, To that end, over the last few years, the college has been developing a major project, the a development of a new centre of excellence for the teaching of surgery and the teaching in particular of surgical anatomy. The first phase of that project, the Wolfson Surgical Skills Centre, was opened last year. The second phase of it is currently in building and the money for that has been raised. The third phase, however, is still to be built and the funds are still to be raised for that. It's a major undertaking on the part of the college. The project as a whole will cost over £10 million. We've raised most of that money. We're still looking to raise about £2 million for the project. Anything that you can give would be welcome. If you'd like to know more about how you can support the college and the project, these leaflets describing the Eagle project are available, and you can pick one up on the way out. The college is an independent educational charity. We don't receive support from the government for our work. Our money comes from our members, surgeons, from our sponsors and benefactors, and those who give donations, and it's that that allows us to carry out our work. So that's a little bit about the business. One other piece of housekeeping before we start, which is, please, if you have a mobile phone, could you make sure you have it turned off or turned silent for the course of the lecture? And having said that, let me introduce our speaker this evening. Many of you will know Dr. Ruth Richardson for her work as a historian and writer, a frequent contributor to the BMJ and to the Lancet. Ruth's perhaps best known for her groundbreaking study in social and medical history, Death, Dissection, and the Destitute. Now, Ruth's a frequent visitor to the museum and to the library, and more recently she's been working here on a history of that most famous of modern anatomical texts, Grey's Anatomy Descriptive and Surgical, now just known by its shorthand title Grey's Anatomy, first published in 1858 and still going strong 150 years later as it prepares to enter its 40th edition. Ruth contributed the historical survey to the 39th edition of Gray's, and her book, The Making of Mr. Gray's Anatomy, will be published by OUP later this year. And again, there are some flyers giving what I think is a very generous discount on Ruth's book. And Ruth will have some to hand out at the end of her talk, and again, you can pick them up from the table on the way out. So it's a great book. Delight to welcome Ruth this evening, and we look forward to having a sneak preview of what I think will be a wonderful book and a fantastic story Grey's Anatomy and Those Who Created It. Ruth Richardson.
1: Well, good evening. Um, It's a great honour to be standing here, it really is. And thank you very much for your kind words, Simon, and for helping me with the graphics. Um, Now, I think I ought to start, let's just have a look, with a few facts about Grays. Okay, can you all hear me? Can you all hear me at the back? Oh, that's good. Um, A few facts to start with. It first came out in September 1858 either the very, very end of August or the very start of September. I, my hunch is it's the beginning of September, but that's nitpicky. Um, the title was Anatomy, Descriptive and Surgical, and since the pu- first publication there have been numerous editions listed up here. The last, the last and the most, the most recent will be out at the right time, I hope, later this year, We have the editor in the front row, Susan Standring, Professor Susan Standring, and I'm very pleased that she's come today. Um, So this is the 40th edition, so that's a a serious anniversary just for the book, but it's also the 150th year of its continuous publication. It's never been out of print in all those years. It's always been a rolling programme of publication. Um, And you can see from here the first two... Edition Sir Henry Gray. I, I put at the very top that actually it's co authored, and I do believe that, having studied it very carefully. Um, Henry Gray's name is on the spine of the book, but I, I do believe that without Henry Carter's drawings, it wouldn't be half as famous as it, it is, mean, it wouldn't have become half as famous as it is. But that will become evident in the course of the talk. So Henry Gray's up there for the first two editions. Then the next editor was Tim- Timothy Holmes, who took over from Henry Gray after Henry Gray's death. Henry Gray died at the age of 34, which I'll come to in a minute. But Timothy Holmes had proofread the first edition and helped with the second edition too. So he already knew the book backwards and forwards when, when Gray died and he was asked to take, her, take it on. And so he was the editor from the 3rd to the ninth, up to 1880. So you can see he was the key figure in, in helping it survive, after the rocky bit at the beginning when when Grey died. Then after Holmes, Pickering Pick, another George's man, who I think Holmes taught, he certainly was around... He remembers um, Henry Grey, Pickering Pick, but unfortunately he didn't write anything about him, and nor did Timothy Holmes. Didn't write anything down about him or anything much. The next one is Robert Howden, who worked with Pick on two editions as a, a helper and then took over himself. So he, was, he saw it up till after the Great War. The next one, Johnson saw it up till after the Second World War. Davies only did two editions, but actually had worked on four. Then Peter Williams, who you know, was editor to Within Living Memory, he, he knew Davies and had an association with it before Davies passed it on. And Susan Standring produced the index to the, to the last Williams edition. So Susan Standring has also... It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a long... It's a dynastic succession. I think that's what you could safely call it. And if Susan could be in the same room with all those people, it would be only seven handshakes back to Henry Gray. It's not that many individuals, actually, have been responsible for the survival of this great book. So that's basically the, the long history, but my lecture today is really about the making, so I'm going right back to the beginning, okay, to talk about the makers of the book. Um, it's been called the Doctor's Bible, it's probably the, f- the most famous medical book in the world, I can't think of another, um, maybe Vesalius perhaps, but um, in the world now, I think probably Grey, I think it's certainly the most famous book in print still and it's the only one that the only um, textbook the only anatomical textbook that's been in continuous print for 150 years that's really an amazing distinction and to be in print continuously for that long shows there's something very important going on in this book something worthwhile and particularly in medicine such a fast-moving field it's a sign that there's something that this book is, has been and is something really rather special it's gone from being 720 pages in the first edition to, if you have the paper, I was going to bring it but it's just too heavy for me to lug it's gigantic, it's 1,626 pages now but you can also get it on a CD so, and you can also access it online so it's gone from pretty good technology of its day then to pretty good technology of its day now and illustrative techniques as well. Um, Now, I got involved quite by luck, absolute luck. I was asked to speak about um, Grey's Anatomy on a radio programme, and I didn't actually know that much, but I thought, oh, I should know something about that. What can I say? So I went to the library, the British Library, and I looked up what they had, and I spent a couple of days mugging up. And when they interviewed me, I was able to speak nicely about it, but without the knowledge I've got now. But I did speak nicely about it. And Susan Standring was interviewed on the same program. We didn't meet at all, but she heard me talking away in my happy way about this marvellous book. And she wrote me a lovely letter afterwards asking if I would write the historical introduction to the next edition. And so that's how I've got involved with it. I've got completely, absolutely head over heels in in love with the book and in love with the people involved in it. And that's what's happened to me. I've kind of got submerged in a delightful way with this book ever since that letter, really. Um, So let's just... Oops, sorry, I pressed the wrong button. What have I done? I pressed the wrong thing. I meant to do this. That's it. That's the right one. Um, now, the, the first edition was created out of the decade that created... The, well, didn't create the Great Exhibition. The Great Exhibition was 1851, so that's previously... It, it, was, it was a product of the 1840s, the Great Exhibition. But the, the public view of the Great Exhibition is from 1851 onwards when it becomes the Crystal Palace and gets moved to Sydenham after a year in Hyde Park. Now, they saw Paxton's uh, uh, Crystal Palace go up and come down. Both Henry Gray and Henry Van Dyke Carter were both working at Hyde Park Corner at the old St George's Hospital at Hyde Park Corner during this period. When it was going up and coming down, they saw all the visitors. They saw the procession of the Queen on the day of opening and so on it was, it was quite a thing in their lives and I think it stands for a lot of things I think it stands for the book in many ways, the Great Exhibition this gigantic enclosure with an even more vast stuff, amount of stuff inside it um, something that's portable, the Great Exhibition was portable um, and something that exercised an important influence which both the Great Exhibition and Gray's have done Um, and a very long legacy to both of them. There's a lovely passage in Italo Calvino's book, Invisible Cities, which is a gem of a book. It's about, um, if you don't know it, it's about a man called Marco Polo who visits the Kubla Khan. And the Kublai Khan is always locked inside his palace and doesn't ever get out and about, so he asks Marco Polo to tell him about the world. And Marco Polo tells him about the world, and he wants to hear more and more stories, and Marco Polo runs out of stories, so he starts making them up. It's a marvellous book. And these are invisible cities. They're places that don't exist. And somewhere in there, there's a beautiful moment where they're playing chess, and the great Khan looks at the chessboard, and he sees that when he wins the game all it is is a square of wood it's actually nothing at all it's just a square of wood and then Marco Polo speaks to him and he says your chessboard sire is inlaid with two woods ebony and maple the square on which your enlightened gaze is fixed was cut from a ring of trunk of a trunk that grew in a year of drought you see how its fibers are arranged here a barely hinted knot can be made out a bud tried to burgeon on a premature spring day, but the night's frost forced it to desist. The great Khan looked up from the game, absolutely knocked out with this intuition about the wood. Here is a thicker pore. Perhaps it was a larvum's nest, not a woodworm, because once born it would have begun to dig, but a caterpillar that gnawed the leaves and was the cause of the trees being chosen for chopping down. This edge was caught, scored by the woodcarver with his gouge so that it would adhere to the next square, The magnitude of things that could be read into that little piece of smooth and empty wood overwhelmed the Kublai. Polo was already talking about ebony forests, about rafts laden with logs that come down the rivers, of docks, of women at the windows. And the passage goes on with a series of dots, which Calvino often does that to say, oh, I could say more. That evocative image puts me in mind of Professor Standring's letter And I'd like you to keep in mind, too, as I make my way through the story of Henry Gray and his almost unknown co-author, Henry Van Dyke Carter, and I'd like you to keep it in mind, too, that pictures such as the one you're currently looking at were hand-sculpted from woodblocks in the 19th century by Victorian wood wood engravers. Now, wood engraving is a fantastic skill, and there's nobody nowadays alive who could do the engravings. At least, I don't believe so. Those skills died a death at the end of the 19th century, perhaps in the early 20th. People do make very beautiful artistic wood engravings, but these things are called facsimile engravings, which are copies, direct copies of original drawings. And they're as faithful as they can possibly be to the original. And it's a skill that is highly tuned in the 19th century, absolutely to the nth degree. There was a lot of competition, so if you were a really good engraver, you could get good work and be well paid. Now, if you have ever tried wood engraving, you'll you'll know that what I'm saying is not very detailed, but if you haven't tried it, what it is is you get a little tiny block of boxwood usually. Uh, Boxwood's in short supply nowadays, so they usually give you some other fruit wood like apple or um, cherry. And it's a tiny little block the size of a branch usually. It's very hard to get big blocks because they're in short supply and they tend to split, so you get particular parts of the tree. And you have special tools, rather like lino-cutting tools, but much finer. And you you draw your picture on the block. Some people whiten it first. You draw your picture on the block and then you have to cut out the white bits. So you're leaving the surface, which is very, very fine, you're leaving that very smooth surface for the ink when it when it gets inked that's what makes the print okay so you cut out the white bits and you have to do your picture in reverse like any kind of printing so that it comes out the right way around when you print it okay so that's how all these things were done and by the mid 19th century they've worked out how to put the blocks together uh, this is from a huge panorama of the Great Exhibition about so wide. It's an absolute beaut. And it's made up, I don't know how many blocks would have been in there, but a lot. Um, and there were ways of copying it and things later on, as stereotyping and uh, copper facing, and all kinds of other technologies develop. But this, uh, a, a Grey's Anatomy is printed at the height of the period of the wood engraving, of the Victorian wood engraving. Okay, so I, I had to tell you that because the illustrations are so crucial. I'm going to talk a little bit about the character of both men and then at the book they created together. Okay. This is a photograph, an early photograph of Henry Gray when he was a young man. I mean, he, didn't, he died as a young man. He died at 34, so he was always young. Uh, but this is, I think, quite early. He's, he's about, I would say, about 25, 28 here. Um, and it was photographed by a chap from the medical school who was also a great had a great interest in photography, a man called Pollock, who was at St. George's. He was born in 1827, Grey. There's confusion about his his age. The welcome catalogue has him as born in 1825, and several of the obituaries get it wrong. I think he must have told given the wrong age when he signed up at medical school. So he went early. He was very, very keen and very hungry to learn so I think he got in sooner than he should perhaps and that's where the confusion may have come from it's not clear at all where it came from um, the early records are hard to find at St George's but he got a prize in anatomy in 1843 at the end of the dissecting season in 1843 so that means he signed in at least October 1842 maybe sooner and when he would have been 15 or 16 we don't even know his birth date actually because um, he was born before registration, and it hasn't been tracked down yet. So if anybody has a baptismal entry of it of his birth, that would be delightful. Um, he was he never wanted to qualify in any other form of medicine than surgery. He went straight for surgery. Wasn't interested in any other form of training, um, and he had the patronage of Sir Benjamin Brodie, who was the big fish, not just at St George's, but right the way across London. He was um, surgeon to the king and then the queen and goodness knows who else and also the first president of... I mean, I'm sure he was the president here. I don't know what years he was the president here and of the Royal Society and of the gen- he was the first president of the General Medical Council. He's a very big fish and he was behind Grey from very early on. We don't quite know why or how that happened, but he was. And if you had patronage at George's in the early, in this period, in the mid-nineteenth century, you were okay. But Brodie was the kind of man who wouldn't back anyone except someone who was going to be a winner. And so it's, uh, it's quid pro quo. Um, okay, this, this picture is of Carter, Henry Van Dyke Carter. And he looks older here because he is. He was actually much younger than Gray. He was four or five years younger than Gray, depending on when Gray's birth date was. Um but this picture was done later in life, so here he's probably in his, I would say his mid-30s, I would say, perhaps a little later and I believe it's a self-portrait it's not catalogued as that, but I believe it's a self-portrait, it's his something about the line in it makes me think it's his, and he's, it's signed in the centre, below and I believe it's, it's his own work um, he's an interesting man in many, many ways, but I'll go into that slightly further on. He signed up as an apothecary in Scarborough, where he came from, um, and had done, he'd, but he didn't like the training up there, he wasn't happy. So he got transferred down here to a, 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 GP, a, a general practitioner, what they called a general practitioner, which was. Ah, oh, I better go back just a sec which was a GP who was an apothecary and a surgeon in Park Street, which is a road that runs just to the east of Park Lane. It was a very well-off district and I think he was quite lucky to get posted in such a place. He could have been put anywhere, but that's where he went. I don't know how that was engineered. I don't know what the contact was there. I think it came via the college, but I don't know how that happened. That's something I've not yet been able to track down. So, there's three big questions, which... Oops, sorry. Um, Okay, the three big questions are, why did they undertake such a labour? Why did they think they could do better than the existing books around? And why were their efforts so successful? So, if I can answer those three today, I hope you'll go away knowing a lot more about Greys. So, the first way I'll try and lead in is to show you a map this is not a brilliant reproduction, but it's, it gives you a guide. You can see St. George's is on the corner between um, Hyde Park, up in the top corner there, and St. James's, Green Park and St. James's Park, with the big lake, okay? But the, the corner is Hyde Park corner, and that's absolutely where St. George's Hospital was. Okay, then... As you, if you come straight down, you can see the one, the pink label that says Grey. That's where Grey lived in Belgravia. His parents were, his father was a, a king's messenger um, for both the Regent when, and when the Regent became king, and then for William the um, and, and had this house in Wilton Street. There's a plaque on it today, um, commemorating his life. Um, further, right further down at the very bottom corner you can see where Carter lived which is in Ebury Street that's, that's when he, after he'd left his um, practice the, the, the apothecary's practice he had to go into lodgings and the cheapest lodgings he could get which were decent and near enough to the school to walk were down in this area called Ebury Street which is now quite a classy district but in those days it wasn't um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. And then if you come back up to Knightsbridge, the, the fourth label just along from the hospital is Kenneton Street. That was where the dissecting room was. Okay. Am I making a lot of noise with this? Am I... can't stand it. I'm going to move it. Is that... whoops. Hang on, let's just see. Is that better? So sorry. I'm so sorry. I will continue with more, a clearer sound. I do apologize. Okay, so this is, this is another map which is later in time. This is the Booth poverty maps of London. Charles Booth made these magnificent maps. You couldn't do it nowadays because it would be politically terribly incorrect. But the, you can see the golden streets are the rich The red are different layers of middle class and black and blue are the poverty-stricken, you know, proletariat. Okay, so you can see how the the gradient of color goes all the way down to where Carter lived in his lodgings and um, you can see where Gray's living is quite posh. Now, one of the interesting things about this picture too is that it has a dotted line which shows the boundary between... I think it must be Westminster and Kensington, it's, but it runs along the Serpentine River. And that's the outf- outflow from the Serpentine Lake in Hyde Park. Um, and you can see the colours are different all the way down there. They, it gets darker and darker on the booth map. If, if you lifted up the little pink sticker at the bottom, you'd see it was really navy blue down the bottom. And you can see it's not quite Belgravia because it's kind of different colour all the way down. And that's because those, those roads and the little red roads that back all the golden roads are muse houses. That's where the horses and the servants and people like that, the stable boys and the, those sort of people lived behind the golden houses. Okay, and you can see the other areas where, where Victoria Station is shown in this lower corner here. That was a canal, and they were building Victoria Station in the 1850s. They were filling the canal and building what was going to be the railway into Victoria in the 1850s. I think it opens 1860 or so. So you can get a sense of the gradient. It's also a geographical gradient. It goes lower as you go further towards the river. So that's from the top of the picture to the bottom of the picture. There's a social gradient and a height gradient. So, you know, general health... St. George's was on a, on a hill, and that those hills were supposed to be agreed to be healthy. Okay, so that's the hospital, that's the environment. Um, Kinnerton Street is where they built the dissection room on a poor street round the back. They couldn't get Belgravia land for that. The Duke of Westminster obviously developed the whole area around the hospital, and the hospital couldn't get any extra land, but they built a, a, a dissecting room there. Brodie was very, a very key figure in funding it. Now this, unfortunately, when I went to take a picture of Gray's house, it was under scaffolding. Story of my life, this. And I couldn't get the plaque. But um, this is the front door that used to, he used to go into to his mum's house, where his, his mother was a widow most of the time that... Uh, All the time that um, he and Carter were doing the work on the book, I don't know whether she had lodgers or not. Uh, The census records have disappeared for this particular street, unfortunately. They might still be found somewhere or other, but you know it's one of those annoying things. You can't find these things out. Um, But I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't know. He had pretensions to be a gentleman. He dressed as a gentleman and behaved as a gentleman. And he was working his way up, up the greasy pole at St. George's to be a a top surgeon. That's what he wanted to be. And he was absolutely single-minded about it. He got his membership here. He got a fellowship at the Royal Society pretty quick. He was only 25 when he became a fellow of the Royal Society um, and later took his fellowship here. Now, I don't know really if the fellowship of the Royal Society was for anything much, uh, it, he did make one anatomical discovery um, about, the, about the eye which is an interesting thing but I'm not sure if that really would be sufficient these days to get you a fellowship of the Royal, Co- Royal Society but he knew Brody and he, knew, he had support, he had lots of supporters there um, and so I'm happy for him that he got his fellowship it was good for him but 25 is very very young and it's a measure not just of talent but also of insider status And that's something to bear in mind in the whole story. I think he was a workaholic. There's no question really about the kind of person he was. He was very driven. He didn't stop working the whole time. And you can feel that by the amount of stuff he did in his short life. Very, very busy, active man, trying to write, trying to publish, trying to qualify, trying to do all sorts of things. Trying to make money, trying to do well. So I think he was a bit of a workaholic. And I think he would also be quite disconcerted to find himself remembered as an anatomist because he didn't want to just be an anatomist. He wanted to be a surgeon. And actually on his death certificate it says, Henry Gray, lecturer in anatomy and consulting surgeon. I presume that means that people come and consult him. He wasn't actually a consulting surgeon at, at St. George's. But he was already doing surgery at the dispensary which was run by St. George's and St. James's, the parish dispensary. No, it wasn't a parish. It was a charitable dispensary in Golden Square, near the workhouse in Golden Square, an outpatient facility. He was doing surgery there for a few years before he died. Um, But I think he would have preferred to be remembered as a surgeon rather than as an anatomist. But it's understandable that he's remembered as an anatomist because he died before he became a top surgeon. And the book is the key thing that everybody remembers him by. But he would have liked to have been remembered, I think, as a surgeon rather than an anatomist. Both, both. Um, he wanted to be the tip-top consultant for his local village, which was Belgravia. I think that's what his aim in life was. Belgravia and St. James's would have, would have suited him very nicely. He died age 34, as I've mentioned, of confluent smallpox, which is the most terrible, terrible way to die and it's not very fast. It's about, it, takes, it took, I think it says on the death certificate, seventh day. He died after the seventh day. Um, and he'd caught it, not from the dispensary, as you'd expect, and not from his uh, dealing with the riffraff of the poor, but he caught it from his own little nephew. And it's tragic because St. George's is also famous for having been the home of Jenna, the, the father of vaccination, the so-called father of vaccination, um, he wasn't the first vaccinator but he was the first experimenter and the first prover of vaccination um, and Henry Gray had been vaccinated as a child but unfortunately in the 50s, in the, in the 1860s there was a new strain of smallpox came into Britain and nobody knows quite what it was I mean a lot of the history of this um, virus has not been properly done yet but the he had been vaccinated but he wasn't immune to it and so he fell for it he thought he, was, he would be immune and he wasn't and on the death certificate it says not only that he was vaccinated but the vaccination had been certified so his mother had been very careful to make sure her boy was protected and it's the most terrible tragedy for everybody that he wasn't protected, that just a little virus can kill a whole human being I mean it, it happens all the time all around the world in other diseases today, but it just seems such a terrible thing for such a good young man to die so young, and for his mother to have been so careful and still to have lost her boy. At the time of his death, I've mentioned he was lecturer of anatomy and surgeon. Um, there's no material personal material about him, and I think this is related to the fact that he died of smallpox I think what happened is that everything around him was burnt that everything he touched or worn or slept in was just got rid of after he died and that would be the only reason that would be the only way to explain the complete lack of letters or diaries or anything and also of his manuscripts of any kind I mean there are a few things that survive there's there's one manuscript in the library here thank goodness. There's an essay that he wrote, which I'll come to in a second. Um, but really, it's very sad that there's nothing. I mean, there's the odd letter here and there. But really, it's nothing. It's, you, it's so frustrating because you want to know what this person was like. You want to get at the humour. You, you, know, you want to know if he had a sense of humour. <laughs> you want to know, you know if he'd be kind, what sort of person he was. And it's really hard to get. But anyway, that's you know I'm not writing a major biography I'm doing a biography of a book here so I just have to live with that frustration and historians often do you just have to live with it and float with it um, so one of the most important things that's left of him is his essay which he submitted for a prize at this, in this building uh, um, it was called the Triennial Prize Essay and it had a prize of £50 pounds, which is a lot of money some people had an annual salary of £100 pounds and thought it was good in those days so 50 quid was a nice prize um, and that was the essay that he did the work on it's a very interesting essay because his conclusion he, he ran out of time and the conclusion actually was the paper he published for the Royal Society and that's how he got his fellowship at the Royal Society I don't think he left it out intentionally I think he, he just overran his time which is such an easy thing to do when you've got a deadline she says um, <coughs> Very little evidence about him as a person. Apart from a few obituaries, nobody left a memoir. Nobody wrote down what he was really like. Nobody left any kind of personal memoir of him at all. I've, it's been really hard to find anything. There are glimmers here and there. But it's really difficult to get at him. And after a while, you start wondering about this. You start wondering why people didn't write about him. And when Pickering Pick, who was a, uh, an editor... Um, a late editor of of Grey's Anatomy, does a fantastic tour of a photograph of the anatomy room with Grey's in it, which I'll put up in a minute. And he goes round various people and talks about, you know, characters here and there, and he just says, and Grey, what shall I say about Henry Grey? And then he doesn't say anything at all. (laughs) And you just wish you could put the mic, you know, and get him to say it. The frustrations of being a historian... But anyway, such is life. History is made from that which escapes the dust heap, as a historian once said. The historian L.S. Darley, and I don't know if L.S. Darley was quoting anyone else, but that's where I found it. Um, And I'm very grateful to L.S. Darley, whoever L.S. Darley was, for saying it, because in this case it's absolutely true. The other figure in the story, Van Dyke Carter, was a diary keeper. Not a voluminous diary keeper, um, but luckily he kept his diaries from this era and his family kept them after he died and they survived right up until today and they're in the Wellcome Library in the, in the rare books room of the Wellcome Library and they're very well looked after there I'm glad to say um, and he gives us the best view of the making of Grey's Anatomy that you could hope for even though he's not very generous with his words he uses shorthand a lot of the time especially for private things. Um, and even when he's writing longhand, he might only write a couple, of, a couple of lines about what he's doing any day. And often it's not what you want to hear. You know, you want to know what he was drawing, and he doesn't tell you what he's drawing. But from reading between the lines, and I've spent to the last four years reading between the lines in this diary, you get a feeling of what was going on. You get the chronology and you get a sense of him as a person, and you do get a sense of what Grey was like, too. Um, and it's not all good about Grey, but it's very fair. Carter is a very, very decent man, and he's very fair about Grey. He doesn't say anything really rude about him. But there is a feeling that he was a bit of a slave driver, and um, I won't say any more at the moment. Um, yes. There's a lot in the book, but I don't go into it too much because I have tried to be fair to Gray. He's a person on his own path, and those sort of people get places, and they have to be allowed to get places. It's only if they tread on someone else's feet or faces that you start worrying about it. Um, And I don't think he did it too much. But that's a judicious um, summary. So often what what Carter says is frustratingly opaque, but it's enough to get enough of a feeling for what was going on. Carter, there's Greg again, there's Carter. He's provincial, he's from Scarborough, educated in Hull. He's quiet, he's introspective. He, he um, trained as an apothecary, as I mentioned, but before that he had become very keen on microscopy through going to Hull Grammar School which was a very good school at that stage I'm sure it still is um, and it was run by a man called Solit, who was an uncle by marriage so he may have got reduced fees or something I'm not, it's not clear what the arrangement was but he was an uncle by marriage and he was a microscopist an interesting man, Solit, very widely knowledgeable and interesting man to, to have as a headmaster um, so he was a provincial, not, not rich. He came from a poorish background. His father was an artist. Oh, that's the house Carter lived in. I think that's the house. I may be wrong, but th- this is the sort of quality of houses in Ebury Street. They're much smaller than uh, Wilton Street, and he had a back room and an attic. That's Carter's dad when he was young. His name's Henry Barlow Carter, and he's a very fine English watercolour artist, very fine, and um, he was a contemporary of Copley Fielding and a whole load of other very interesting artists of that period who used watercolour, as well as I, I, he did do some oils, but mostly watercolour, and he's greatly exercised by Turner and th- that kind of English, very English work. Not, it's not counted as great art by you know in terms of. Um, Millet and people like that. It's, they're generally smallish watercolors, but they're very fine things all the same. Um, that's his mama there. His mum was quite religious, um, devout, nonconformist, and she and her son had a he, he took after his mother, both in, I think personality-wise, rather quiet and uh, self-effacing, and also very religious. And uh, he and his mother had an arrangement whereby they prayed together long distances apart, wherever they were on a Thursday night, and also he kept Sundays free for the Sabbath. When he was a child, his father did the illustrations for a very famous guide to Scarborough called Feakston's Guide to Scarborough, The and Scarborough Guide which is a lovely book full of the most beautiful little wood engravings and a very fine book jacket too on some of the later editions, I haven't found a first edition yet but the later editions have got lovely embossed binding <coughs> casing, sorry casing all these technical words but his dad did the Illustrations for the wood engravings. He didn't actually do the wood engravings, but he did the illustrations. And they're very lovely little vignette things on the Buick, sort of Buick size, lovely little illustrations. And my Carter, Henry Van Dyke Carter, was about nine or ten when his dad was doing these. And I think it focused his eye right down on absolute detail, on illustrative detail in black and white, how you can get colour in black and white. Um, all kinds of things come out of this I think but also his interest in microscopy gets really fostered how a tiny picture can have your whole your whole city you know your whole environment in it and how you can look through here and see where you walk and see your bridge you know see your environment and it's only that big I think there's something about these pictures that go in somewhere deep in his psyche and they come out again in greys in a lovely way um so while he's at in london he, he comes to work in park street first then he goes to st george's and does all his qualifications that's all the courses he did um, and after that he came here to work in the museum uh, and that's, this is the museum which is i hope is the postcard still for sale upstairs the lovely interior with okay upstairs in the museum there's this fantastic picture fantastic picture of the museum as it was before it got hit by the bomb in the war, before it got blitzed out of recognition it's a multi-storey museum with dinosaurs and goodness knows what gigantic things and little things all in bottles all over the place, antlers and goodness knows what, it's a fantastic museum in the 19th century it is equally fantastic now in a different way Um, I'm not putting it down by any means, as you know I reviewed it nicely (laughs) but it was a spectacular thing and it would be a spectacular thing if one could walk into it. And that picture is about as near as you can get, the postcard that's for sale upstairs. And Carter was employed, as a, he, it was called a studentship, and he was employed to help Richard Owen, who subsequently started off the Natural History Museum, and John Quackett, who was the man who wrote the first textbook on microscopic technique in Britain, and one of the first in the world, I think, probably amongst the first in the world. Um, so he was working under those two men. And he was employed, basically, to take visitors around the, the museum And because the, the college couldn't pay or couldn't afford to pay proper staff. So they invited these students as a great honor to come and work here for a small salary and then worked them to the bone while they were here. Um, and the college was very good at that. Uh, but he did show people around, and there's all kinds of... Um, notes in the diary which he kept when he was here it's a great big volume up in the exhibition in his handwriting and it's got sketches and things in as well about people who came and bringing um, specimens in and so on and little sketches and so on of what he's what he was having to deal with at the time so basically he was easing the workload for quacket and owen to do the real work of curating and looking after the museum I looked at the staff list of that period and there were only two curators. uh, some I think more porters, about four or five porters and a cleaning lady. And that was it. That was it. So the porters had a lot of carrying and security, I should think, work to do. But the cleaning lady must have had the worst job of all. (laughs) All those bottles and all those antlers. Um, Never mind. So this is his certificate. These are all the courses he did. And after that... He went back to St George's. This is 1855. Went back to St George's. During that period, he had got, during the period at St George's originally, he'd got his licentiate of the Society of Apothecaries, and his membership here. Okay. Um, and then he went back to the college because he he was uh, teaching dissection. He was a demonstrator, which is not an unpaid post, but it's good experience, and it it might have got him a place on the ladder up in the college. So, and while he was there, he worked for Gray on some very important projects, one of which is, this illustration was done for, um, which was a gigantic prize called the Astley Cooper Prize, um, with money left by Astley Cooper, the famous surgeon. And the the purse was 300 guineas, which you can imagine how much money that must have been to go for, and a lot of people did go for it. Um, And the illustrations in... Gray's um, application, his submission for this essay prize, were done by Carter. Not all of them, but some really beautiful ones were done by Carter. And Gray was a little bit naughty because he didn't tell the examiners that. Uh, and when the book came out later, which was published by John W. Parker, the essay won the prize and then was published as a book. He didn't credit Carter with the illustrations in there either. So you can see there's something going on slightly. Here and of course when it came out as a book, Carter was very upset that Gray hadn't given him any credit. But what, Gray won the prize, and um, this particular illustration—it's gigantic here. The original is about so high, about four four and a half inches high. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's obviously it's from a microscopic. He's looking down a microscope or, or using a camera lucida, which is a little lens. And drawing from that, so that's why it's in a circle. It's what you see down the lens, and you can see the the care and acuity of vision that he's got, and the acuity of presentation that he's got at that kind of. Uh, I mean, how large that is. It's extraordinary. So he he was um, he helped him on the, he helped Gray on the spleen, um, and I'll just show you. This is what the, the current books were like. This is Quain, which was the famous book. This is the kind of illustration that you've got. See, that's it's only three, it's less than three inches wide, and it's probably one and a half inches high. So that gives you some idea. And if you go upstairs afterwards, you'll see the other books that he they were competing with. That's just to give you an idea of size. Um, so Carter goes back. The the spleen thing is happening while Carter is working here. That's the chronology, that the spleen prize is 1853, and that's while Carter is here. So Gray doesn't do that much for the next couple of years. And then this is his diary. This is Carter's diary from the college. That's his handwriting there. When they go back, they're teaching in this building here, which is on Kinnerton Street. Um, It's now art studios and family housing for artists, um, but in those days, it was the St. George's Hospital Medical School, Kinnerton Street, and this is a view of the interior taken after Carter had left the hospital, but the person by the feet of the corpse on the left, that's, that is grey when he was slightly older than the original photograph I showed you. Okay, so he's, he's, this is 1860, so he's 33 here. It's the year before he died. And you can get a feeling of that room. It was considered to be the best dissecting room in London at the time. And you can see the pictures all around on the walls, the diagrams, the teaching diagrams. There aren't that many bodies there, but it's the end of term. It's the end of March. So that's the closing of the term, the closing of the dissecting season in March. Because once the weather got warmer, they didn't have formaldehyde in those days. And to preserve bodies in alcohol was very expensive. It still is. So they were used fresh or with you know, salt and stuff, oh, goodness knows what they used. It wasn't formaldehyde, so that it must have smelt, but the smells would have risen, and it would have been not a bad place. Um, and top lit, sufficient room for the sun's rays to keep the place fairly cool, not to get too too baking hot. And it was at, in Kinnerton Street, as I mentioned. Um, now, at the end of 1855 no, this is, sorry, this is in the summer of 1855, after the, um, after Carter had finished at the college, Gray applied for a thing called the Falarian Professorship at the Royal Institution, which was £100 a hundred pounds a year's salary for three years to lecture on physiology. And he stood a pretty good chance of getting, getting the job, but the trouble is he was up against Thomas Huxley, and he didn't get it. And, it must have been pretty devastating because he'd had lots of good referees and so on and he, was, he thought he had a good chance for it but it was the first time he'd tried for anything and failed he'd been serious and assiduous in all his other attempts at things and he'd always had success he'd got prizes here, there and everywhere and he'd gone all the way up through the hierarchy at the hospital, demonstrator, museum curator post-mortem examiner, all the different grades hospital governor, so on and so on and so on The the spleen prize, the spleen book, everything had just fallen into his lap. It was hard work, but it fell into his lap. But in this case, he failed, and it was quite a public failure. So off he goes back to Kinnerton Street to lick his wounds. And the end of that year, when Carter is working in the dissecting room teaching and also producing a huge series of 40 or or more um, diagrams and dissection uh, illustrations for the medical school, some of them microscopic. Gray comes to him with the idea about a book on on anatomy. Now, at first, Carter's not that keen because he wants to study for his MD. He wants to get an MD. He doesn't want to be an apothecary surgeon or a GP. He wants to be an MD, which is a physician. Um, And that's what he was studying for. He'd already got his MB. He'd got that while he was here, while he was working here. Um, So at first, he wasn't very keen about it. But soon he began to see that possibly it might be providential because he'd be paid to survive till he got his MD. It would give him a regular wage. And at the time, he was surviving on almost nothing. He was hungry. He hadn't been paid for all the drawings he'd done for the for the medical school. They hadn't paid him. And often when you when you do work by commission, as I know because I'm a freelance and it's very tough, people don't pay for months. And, you know, you have hiatuses or hiati, where you have no money at all, and it's really tough, it's really difficult. And he was in those sorts of, he was suffering those hiatuses. So he, in the end, came round to seeing that this was providential, this offer was providential. So why did they undertake this labour? The answer is because, probably because they were both teaching anatomy, they could see how appalling the existing books were they were good word wise they were quite good in their in their terminology in their teaching they were quite good but in visuals a visual sense they weren't up to much at all they really weren't the engravings are so small you can hardly see what you're supposed to be looking at and they were all covered in proxy labels which is kind of a to z all the way around and you have to keep looking at the footnote to find what it is you're supposed to be looking at dreadful books Um, by comparison so you've got why they wanted to do it how they did it is another story and I can't go into the detail here I've told you about wood engraving one of the key things is that Carter started on paper and then transferred to drawing directly onto the wood himself he didn't allow a draftsman in between I don't know if he didn't allow it or if the wood engravers asked him to do the drawings directly on the Wood, but I don't quite know how that happened but within a few months he was drawing in reverse himself he was doing his own drafting directly on the wood and so his drawings were cut out they were destroyed by the sculpting process so the upstairs we have the most wonderful, wonderful portfolio of the first prints from the wood engraved blocks they were donated here in 1923 by the engraving company that did the work, Butterworth and Heath. They, they lived on the Strand. Their, their offices were on the Strand. All the work was done on the Strand. And the first prints are upstairs in a portfolio, and they are stunning. I do urge you to go and have a look. I've got some of the pictures here, but as the firm was being wound up, it survived the Great War, but not much. It's 1923. They came along and donated the portfolio to the, to the college, and these are, some of them, very much enlarged. Um, and if you look carefully, you can see on some of them, I've done quite a careful study of these things and I'm going to write about them separately. There's not room in this in my book, really, to do a, do them justice. I've got a paper planned on these. On some of them, you can see that they're dissected out, not just the dissections, but the, the actual paper that they were printed on. This is Gray's. as you've never seen it. These are wonderful, wonderful things. I'm urging them to make wrapping paper out of them. I think they're... (laughs) Or something, something, so we can all have copies. If you look at that man's face, you can see that the, the paper of his cheek is actually the paper of the mounting paper, not the paper it was printed on. And I think that's because it was printed on very, very fine paper called India paper, which was like very thin tissue. And I think it bubbled or took more ink or something. There was some reason why they cut it out. And so the, the some of them are very, very, very carefully sculpted out with a, with a scalpel. Now, I should not go on very much longer. Is that right? I ought to be winding up. Okay, so I'll whiz through the rest of it. So those were the three big questions. Now, on, the, on your left is greys. On your right is quains. Uh, a, you can see why they did the work you can, and you can also see why people prefer to buy greys. It's just a visual thing. Just look at it. That, in that case, Quain is on the right and greys is on the left. This one is grey on your left, uh, Wilson on the right. The American edition of Wilson on the right this is Erasmus Wilson nice book, very beautiful book, and the typography is very good in this edition and I think gray might, Gray's printers might have taken some lessons from Wilson, but uh visually you can see there's no there isn't a contest if you were an anatomy student or you were a parent of anatomy student and you were being taken to the bookshop to buy your kid a book, it's quite clear which one you'd go for, I think. And they also had these very helpful little diagrams which showed you, A, where to cut, and B, where to peel from, which is incredibly helpful. That's, a, that's a, an innovation as far as I can work out. And also just the sheer beauty and magnificence of these things. They are, are the most stunning drawings that have been engraved utterly wonderfully. I mean, the standard of engraving. I've done lots of work on engraving. I've, I catalog a gigantic architectural journal called the builder I've done a lot of work on engraving in my life and I've I know what's good engraving and these things are tip top quite apart from the anatomical structures the lettering is extraordinary it's all cut by hand all the lettering is cut by hand it's beautifully done all legible clear absolutely wonderful drawings that is the original binding Uh, it's called a casing it's a Victorian casing very cheap not expensive, and it's on the back it says Grey's Anatomy. Now, it took me a long time to track down this first edition, and it was here all the time. But I went all around England looking in private libraries and all over the place, catalogues, all sorts of things, looking for an original binding. Couldn't find it. Came here, did some work. They said, oh, we found your, your first edition binding. It wasn't on the catalog, and that was why. But it's got its own box, and I'm very, very pleased to have found what it really did look like. So it had a different title on the spine than on the title page. On the title page it says, Anatomy Descriptive and Surgical. On, here, on the spine, it says Gray's Anatomy Descriptive and Surgical. And that's because Quains said Quain's, Wilson said Wilson's, and so on. You know, it was a competitive thing. And at the very bottom, it's got the name of the publisher, John W. Parker, who I haven't said much about, but there's a chapter on them coming up in the book. I just haven't got time to tell you all the wonderful things that this book has led to. It's just amazing. That's the title page, and you can see... John Parker and son West Strand, their offices were just opposite what is now Charing Cross Station in the Pepper Pot building, which is still there. Um, but unfortunately, the number has disappeared. They've cleared it out. Coots has got the interior of it, and they, they gutted it in, I think, the 70s. Um, so the, sh- the shop numbers have all got altered, and it goes 443, 448, I think. The, the house is missing. But if you count along the windows, it's the sixth and seventh windows from the pepper pot. If you, if you count the curve of the pepper pot as zero, it's the sixth and seventh windows. are there. Just, it, would been, it would have been above their shop, and the publishing house came out of there. It's a very interesting story, all of its, of its own. So if ever you're round about King, uh, uh, Charing Cross... Just look across and give it a nod, because if it hadn't been for Parkers, it wouldn't have happened, this book wouldn't have happened, not in the form it took, and that's what the book's about, but I'm sorry if I can't tell you all of it in one go today, but I hope I've told you enough to answer those questions, okay? Thank you very much.
0: Now, it's customary after lectures for uh, the speaker to answer a few questions, and Ruth has said that she'll be happy to take a few questions. I'm conscious also that one of the greatest things we can offer is the chance to go back and have another look at those proofs. So we're going to take just one or two questions now, but after that the library will be open again for another 20 minutes if you want to go back upstairs and have a look. Does anyone have any questions uh, for our speaker this evening? If I could ask you uh, to hang on while I... Bring a microphone. Thank you. Um, I only had a a very brief chance to visit the exhibition upstairs, um, and uh, I lighted on a review of um, the the book. I didn't have time to look at any other reviews. And it was the most vitriolic review I think I've ever read. Uh, it was unwanted, unnecessary, badly written, dishonest, yes. and so on.
1: Yes. Um,
0: I imagine that was from somebody who was probably jealous of him. Um, or maybe a competitor. Someone who's competitor. very upset.
1: Someone very um, upset.
0: What was the general reaction in terms well, of reviews when he came that out? Well,
1: that, that was an interesting review. It was in the Medical Times, which was... Um, it was really the St George's Journal. George, it was founded by St George's man, the Medical Times, and it would have been where he'd really want a good review. But they gave him an absolute... But it, the good thing was he'd had two really beautiful reviews before that, one in the Lancet, one in the BMJ, and they were beautiful, absolute, you know, you couldn't ask for better ones. And they said the illustrations were perfect and so on. The, the, the suspicion is that the reviewer was Sharpie and Quain, Richard Quaine and Sharpie, who were the editors of Quain at University College, who were anti-Lancet, you know, it was a competitive book. But what they said was that he had basically gutted Quain. And... When you compare, it, it gives you chapter and verse. If you look at the, the whole review, it has chapter and verse with parallel text. And it's really, it, it is not good. I mean, you, you have to say, this young man was a man in a hurry and he was producing an anthology, basically. That's what he was doing. It's not all from Quayne. He takes the best bits from about, you know, 10 or 15 other books. Some of them he gives credit, but Quayne, he doesn't. And he, he, he really should have done. He really should have done. It would have cost him a sentence. A sentence would have been enough. But he didn't do it. And so he got that review. It's such a shame. Yeah. And it was a terrible thing for him to live down. Terrible. It must have... I mean, to receive a review like that must, must have just, you know, dreadful.
0: It's dreadful. Daunting, yes, it's relentless,
1: Absolutely. What is the impetus, impetus between deciding to do the next edition? Partly to keep it in print, no doubt. Mm. And keep it going, because it is, I mean, it's important. Well, I don't think I'm the right person for that. Susan? This is Professor Susan Standring. Yeah. Well, in, in my particular case, it was to change the book totally and make it something that was relevant for surgeons and clinicians and to take it from a, a book which was systematic to one which was regional, And to go back almost to the original title, which is the anatomical basis of clinical practice. Uh, So that was my reason. It was a book which, quite frankly, was losing its way a little bit. And I hope it's back on straight and narrow. I, I think what happened to Gray's historically, long term, was that it went from being a student work to being a work of reference. You know, it became... It started off as what people referred to because the drawings were so good and so useful and the descriptions are good too. They're very concise. What, when Gray gutted Quain, he did gut it. He gutted it beautifully. I mean, each, each boiling down of Quain is so beautifully done. He was very good at finding the most important thing to say and very succinctly. It's a very good job what he did, but it was just a shame he didn't write that sentence. But it went from being a student work to being a major work of reference and so then it had to keep going and it was almost a pathological process you know, the growth of footnotes and the growth of information and so it stops being a student work and becomes this large and every now and again they try and cut it down and find they can't so I think the the CD is brilliant a brilliant idea and the regional thing is very good too I mean, Gray did try to integrate regions and systems in the book but I think the CD lets you do it a lot more easily
0: Well, I think on that note, having gone from uh, the original to the CD, a chance for people to go back and have another look. Um, Thank you very much indeed for coming this evening. Before I wish you on your way, let me just tell you about our forthcoming events. The next lecture in this series, The Artist and the Anatomist by Professor Harold Ellis, is on Thursday the 24th of April. If you'd like to book tickets for that, then do please let us know. We have our events brochure outside.
1: It'll be good, because Harold Ellis is marvellous. He's a brilliant speaker.
0: And if you'd like any details of our other events, please do pick up a brochure or look on our website. We do have details of all the events there. Before you go, can I just remind you, if you haven't filled out your evaluation form, to do it and to hand it on the way out so we have an idea of what you've thought and what we can do in future to improve our lectures. But to end with, let me just thank again Ruth Richardson for a very entertaining and stimulating lecture and a wonderful introduction to Grey's Anatomy. Thank you, Ruth.
1: I just wanted to thank the library staff for doing the exhibition work upstairs it's a really fine exhibition I was so proud when I went up there today to see everyone looking at these at the, the things that are in the library which are hardly ever seen such a pleasure to have them all out for you and it must have been a lot of work to make the exhibition thank you all